We'll, we'll begin with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the wondrous plan that you worked out on this earth. We thank you that you have revealed that plan to us, and we thank you that you have made us a part of your great plan. We ask that you will be with us today and help us to better understand that plan and all of the wondrous things you have for this earth. We, th we thank you and ask these things in, your, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go ahead and keep going. I'm going to fine-tune as you go. So last time we began with the study of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. This is the famous millennium passage. And I pointed out that there are two big questions. Doesn't seem to be advancing up here. Um, oh, let's try F5 and see that one. Okay. two big questions that arise from a reading of Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6 is when will the millennium come and what will the millennium kingdom be like? So in the course of these three sessions we're going to address those two questions. We've been addressing the first question, when will the millennium kingdom come? We'll finish that up and then we'll start with the second question. Also drew a distinction between the universal kingdom of God, which involves God's sovereign rulership over the entire universe, and the theocratic kingdom of God. This is the kingdom that we look forward to, that we long for to be established on earth. The, the restore, restoration of God's government, his control upon the earth. I also laid out the three main views on the timing of the millennium, premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Premillennialism is the idea that the millennial kingdom will be set up after the return of Jesus Christ. Postmillennialism is the idea that the millennial kingdom will be set up before the second coming of Jesus Christ, but it will begin not at the first coming of Christ, but at some undetermined time between those two events, the first coming and the second coming. And then, of course, amillennialism 
is the view that this present church age, this present age, from between the, the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is the millennial kingdom. And then we began with our analysis of these views in terms of how they relate to scripture. And these are the four questions that we're, we're asking. Is the binding of Satan present or future? Is the first resurrection spiritual or physical? Is the duration of the thousand years symbolic or literal? Is the locale of the millennial reign heaven or earth? Last time we addressed the first question, and today we're going to address the final three. Just a review of what I said about the binding of Satan. From the time that Satan first began to exert his evil influence upon the earth, God has placed limitations, restrictions on Satan. Satan has not been allowed to do as much evil as he would like to do. We see that clearly back in the book of Job, how God places restrictions, limitations on Satan. And at the present time, Satan is restricted in the sense that he cannot squelch the proclamation of the gospel like he would like to do. So Satan is restricted. He is limited. But amillennialists make the make the mistake of equating the two, of thinking that restricting Satan is the same as binding Satan. They're two different things. In the, in the millennial kingdom, the evil influence of Satan won't just be restricted, it will be completely eliminated. So that was the binding of Satan. Now the next question we want to take up is the nature of the first resurrection. The question concerning the first resurrection of Revelation 20, 4 through 6, is whether it is a spiritual resurrection or a physical resurrection. In other words, a, an actual bodily resurrection. If this resurrection is physical, the thousand-year period must be future, right? For such a resurrection has not yet taken place. If, however, the resurrection is spiritual, the thousand-year period may be taking place right now in the present. Three views have arisen regarding the precise nature of this resurrection. The first two views hold to a spiritual resurrection, while the third view affirms a physical resurrection, an actual bodily resurrection. View one. In this view, the first resurrection refers to the regeneration of the believer at the point of conversion. In this way, the first resurrection is understood as the initiation into the Christian life in the present age. View two, in this interpretation, the first resurrection refers to the translation of the soul from the sinful earth to God's holy heaven at the point of physical death. In other words, when the believer dies physically, his soul is raised and he ascends from earth to heaven, the effect of which is living and reigning with Christ a thousand years. View three, in this view, the first resurrection refers to believers who will physically come to life at the beginning of the thousand years. 
The first resurrection will restore believers to bodily life for their millennial reign, whereas the second resurrection will bring all unbelievers before the great white throne to be judged. The sharp contrast in this passage is between those who are raised at the beginning of the thousand years and those who are raised at the end. Both are physical resurrections or actual bodily resurrections. But those who are raised at the beginning of the millennium are contrasted with those who come to life at the end of the millennium who face judgment. So the first, the resurrection at the beginning of the millennium is a resurrection of believers, but the resurrection at the end of the millennium is a resurrection of unbelievers unto judgment. So let's, let's refute verses, views one and two. View one requires a use of the word resurrection Anastasis, that is unprecedented in the New Testament. Of the 42 times that it is used in the New Testament, the word is never used to refer to regeneration. It's always referring to an actual bodily resurrection. Likewise, the word resurrection is never used in the New Testament to refer to the translation of the believer's soul into heaven. That's not a resurrection the translation of, of the believer's soul at the point of death. That's in view two. Views one and two teach that the entrance of the saints into their reign is distributed throughout the millennium. Some not entering until it, the period is almost over. <coughs> this stands in contrast to the picture of Revelation 20 in which the entire group of saints begins to reign together and continues this reign for the entire 1,000-year period. View 2 erroneously denies the existence of a second resurrection at the end of the 1,000 years. In other words, when John says in verse 5 that the rest of the dead did not come to life until the 1,000 years were completed, proponents of view 2 understand this to mean that the rest of the dead never do come to life. The first resurrection of Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5, is best understood as a physical resurrection, an actual bodily resurrection of the righteous. Because such a resurrection has not taken place, the thousand years described in Revelation 2 must refer to a period of time yet future. Should the thousand years in Revelation 20... Well, let's, let me finish with this there. So this idea that the amillennialist millennialist has, they have, they have to redefine resurrection. They have to say a resurrection isn't really a resurrection. Even though that word, anastasis, in every other case in the New Testament, refers to a, an actual bodily resurrection, they have to say that in this case, in this particular case, it doesn't actually mean a resurrection. It just means a regeneration. And they also have to say that the resurrection doesn't occur all at once because not everybody who became a Christian became a Christian in the first century, right? You didn't. I didn't. So if you, if you believe that this resurrection actually refers to regeneration, it has to occur progressively throughout the church age, right? So there's a lot of, a lot of redefining that has to go on in, in the in the amillennial view. Bob? 
Um, I don't know if we dealt with this last time, but in Acts 1, are you going to deal with Acts 1 where they specifically asked Jesus about this? Or should I bring it up? Is it okay to bring it up? Bring it up. Okay. In Acts 1, the reason I bring this up because I debated a, an amillennialist one time, and they, they just sort of glaze over. But Acts 1, in verse 4, it says, well... He was together with, this was after Jesus' resurrection, which, by the way, was not figurative. Right. (laughs) He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but wait for the Father's promise. Now, that's the Holy Spirit. This is, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In verse 6, so when they come together, Acts 1, they asked him, Here's what's the key. Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? That's a very clear question. It's not confusing. It's not cryptic. Did the disciples believe there would be a restored kingdom? Yes or no? Yes. And so the issue wasn't whether it would be restored or not, because obviously they were expecting that, and they continued to uh, on into Acts, even though it was for way, way later. Okay, so I asked an amillennialist one time at a pastor's meeting, well, did they think there was going to be a literal kingdom? Well, they all had to admit that they did. Hmm. So I said, well, why didn't Jesus correct them? Why didn't Jesus say there never will be a restored kingdom to Israel? So don't ask stupid questions. It won't ever happen. He didn't do that. Let's see what he did say. Verse 7. It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. So here's the second question. First, they thought it was literal. Second Is there a time or a period fixed for a non-event? And I asked a pastor who went into the Presbyterian Church because he, well, how is it? Is there a time or a period for a non-event? Well, we can't. There's no answer. The only answer is our creed and council doesn't teach that, so we won't believe it. So we need to decide if the scripture is the authority or the traditions of the church are the authority. And so I said, so you're defending the Roman Catholic view. That's what you're doing. And we had quite a spirited debate. I've never been one to try to make things smooth over very well. But I don't, have you run into that yourself, uh, this issue in Acts 1? Not in, the, in that particular scripture passage, no. No, but uh, clearly... They believed, because they thought the headquarters were going to be in Jerusalem, even through most of Acts. They believed there would be a kingdom. They believed it would be headquartered in Jerusalem. And they were thinking it would happen at that time. And Jesus said, there will be a, it's not for you to know the time that's been fixed. No, this fits into my sermon because I'll be talking about... This was was Jesus. the perfect time for Jesus to set them straight. Yeah, I mean, right now, let's get it straight. <laughs> and if Luke knew there was going to be no 
millennium. He certainly would have recorded Jesus correcting them or something, or not even put the question in there. Luke put the question in there so that we know there's still future hope for restored Israel. And we have to decide if we're going to take the Bible literally, according to authors' intent, or not, or are we going to allow church history to determine what we're willing to believe through creeds and councils that were not written by apostles appointed by Christ. So we have to decide what we believe. So this, this first resurrection that occurs at the beginning of the millennium is a, a literal bodily resurrection. It is not a, it is not a uh, figurative or spiritual re resurrection. And it's not, it happens all at once. It doesn't happen progressively throughout the church age, throughout the millennium. The next issue is the duration of the thousand years. And, and you, you might think this one is, is really a slam dunk, but of course they have their responses. Should the thousand years in Revelation 20 be understood literally as 1,000 calendar years or symbolically? as a figurative way to designate a period of time of some other length. Amillennialists and postmillennialists teach that the thousand years should be taken symbolically, whereas most premillennialists, but not all, believe that the thousand years should be taken literally. Because more than 1,000 calendar years have transpired since the first coming of Christ, the question of the duration of the thousand years is significant. If the thousand years is literal, it cannot refer to the period of time separating the two advents of Christ, and it therefore must have reference to a period of time yet in the future. Those who regard the thousand years to be symbolic explain the meaning of the symbol as either an indefinitely long period of time or a complete period of time determined and known only by God. The, the premillennialist pre might say to the amillennialist, well, how can you possibly say that this thousand-year period, this millennium, is from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ? It's already been more than a thousand years. Come on, how, how, how can you say that? Well, Amillennialists are not stupid. They have, they've thought about this, they have an answer that's satisfying to them, and they have a scripture that they point to. So there, are, there are two primary views. I'll, I'll get into this later, what, what, how they try to explain this. There are two uh, primary arguments for the symbolic view. The book of Revelation is full of symbolism. Maybe you've heard that one. The number 1,000 is symbolically significant. So it's not to be understood literally, it's just symbolically significant. Gentry, Kenneth Gentry, states that 10 is the number of quantitative perfection. Furthermore, because 1,000 is the cube of 10, it is surely, it's surely a symbolic sum representing quantitative perfection. So that's what he thinks of the, of the thousand years. There are six problems with the symbolic view. The appeal to the symbolic nature of the book of Revelation is overly simplistic. 
because not everything in Revelation is symbolic, one must provide compelling reasons why something should be considered symbolic. One of the things that I note about the book of Revelation is that God explains his symbols. The, the Bible explains its own symbols. For example, when it tells us about the, the seven stars and the seven candlesticks, and it says the seven stars are seven angels and the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. Um, so it explains its symbols. It doesn't leave us wondering, well, is this symbolic or is this literal? Or It, it explains when things are symbolic. Nobody, but nobody thinks that in the, in the end times there will actually be this animal running around with seven heads and ten horns. Nobody thinks that. Everybody realizes that that is symbolic. Because the Bible explains that, that these animals, these beasts, represent kingdoms. The abundance of symbolic numbers in the book of Revelation has been exaggerated. There is no solid evidence that any of the numbers in Revelation referring to time periods are other than literal. There seems to be no precedent in Scripture for a non-literal use of the designation thousand years. This is the Scripture that Amelinus point to. They point to a thousand hills in Psalm 50 verse 10 as a symbolic use of a thousand but it's not years, and the passage is not prophetic. What the Amillennials do with this verse in, in Psalm 50, it talks about God saying that all the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. And the Amillennials will point out that when it says it's a thousand hills, it doesn't mean just exactly a thousand hills and no more. It's a, it's a figurative way, a symbolic way of saying that all of the cattle on all of the hills on which there are cattle belong to God. So they would say, well, it's, it's a large, indeterminate number. And then they would go to Revelation 20 and say, see, a thousand years doesn't mean just exactly a thousand years and no more. It's just a large, indeterminate number of years. So that's how they try to explain that the thousand years aren't really a thousand years. But the thousand years is different from the thousand hills because the thousand hills is not years and it's not, it's not a prophetic passage. It's a poetic passage. And that's one of the things that we have to do in understanding the Bible is that there are different types of literature in different parts of the Bible. There are prophetic passages, there are poetic passages, and trying to equate them as comparing apples to oranges. John's specific time designation of a thousand years stands in contrast to his use of the indefinite phrase, a short time, in verse 3. Had he wanted to communicate the idea of a long period of time, wouldn't he use the phrase, a long time? But he, as you see in that passage, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, that, that expression, thousand years, is used repeatedly over and over again. The duration of the binding 
was not, was not seen by John in the vision. It was directly re revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. That's significant, that it, it wasn't just something he saw, that it was directly revealed to him that it would be a thousand years. The phrase thousand years in Revelation 20 possesses neither of the two characteristic, characteristics of symbolic language. In order to be considered symbolic, the language in question must possess some degree of absurdity when taken literally and some degree of clarity when taken symbolically. That is not the case with this expression, a thousand years. There's nothing absurd about a thousand years. And if we take it symbolically, it doesn't add any clarity to the passage. The best approach is to assume that all numbers should always be taken at face value and understood as conveying a mathematical quantity unless there is textual or contextual evidence to the contrary. There's no reason to see that expression thousand years is anything but a thousand years. In the absence of such evidence, it is best to affirm the literal meaning of thousand years in Revelation and therefore to reject the interpretation that sees this time period extending from the first coming of Christ to his second coming. The other question that we need to address is the locale of the millennial reign. The question to be considered here is whether the reign of Christ and the saints takes place in heaven or on earth. The three millennial views present three different answers to this question. The millennial reign under amillennialism, the, the millennial reign of Christ takes place in heaven, not on earth. According to Hokema, Anthony Hokema, who is a leading amillennialist. Whereas the thousand year period described in these six years, six verses, is the same throughout, verses one through three describe what happens on earth during this time, and verses four through six depict what happens in heaven. So Hokema breaks the passage up and says, well, the first three verses are what happens on the earth, and the last three verses are what happens in heaven. In the view of amillennialism, therefore, the thousand years of Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, refers to the present reign of Christ and the saints in heaven. Postmillennialism, the millennial reign of Christ takes place both in heaven and on earth. This is what uh, David Chilton says, post-millennialist. Does this reign of the saints take place in heaven or on earth? The answer should be obvious, both. The saints' thrones are in heaven with Christ, yet with their Lord they exercise rule and dominion on earth. In other words, in the view of post-millennialism, Christ reigns from heaven but he exercises his dominion through the saints on the earth. Remember, in the post-millennial view, the millennium comes before Christ's return, so Christ is still up in heaven. Premillennialism. The millennial reign of Christ will take place upon the earth as Jesus reigns from the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. 
in contrast to the claim of those who say there is no indication in these verses that John is describing an earthly millennial reign. That's what Anthony Hogan says. There are at least five reasons to believe that the millennial reign will take place here on earth and not in heaven. Revelation 5.10 identifies the location of the saints' reign to be upon the earth. He's made, God has made us unto kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. When the seventh trumpet sounds in Revelation 11.15, heavenly voices proclaim, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So that's on the earth. The elimination of Satan's activities and influence on earth is part of what makes the millennial reign possible. The binding of Satan is unnecessary for a millennial reign that takes place in heaven, right? I mean, Satan, if the reign is taking place in heaven, you don't need to bind Satan. Revelation 20, verse 9, indicates that the saints who reign for a thousand years are living on the broad plain of the earth. So this is that part at the end of the millennium when, when people rise up in rebellion against God. It talks about how they're, they're reigning, they're living on the broad plain of the earth. They're not living in heaven. Revelation teaches that Christ will return to earth to defeat the nations, after which he will reign for a thousand years. Where are the nations? Well, they're on the earth. Scripture indicates that the millennial reign of Christ will take place upon the earth and that it finds its basis in the Old Testament covenants a promise. In fulfillment of these promises, the divinely redeemed nation of Israel will return to her land where she, will, where she and all Gentile believers will experience the personal presence of the living, resurrected Christ in a real, restored Jerusalem. Bob. Yes. Uh, in Revelation 20, in verse 7, it says, when the thousand years are completed, mm -hmm. Satan will be released from his prison and will go out and deceive the nations. And... Uh, at one point earlier in my life, I was debating an amillennialist at a public debate. And he claimed that the binding of Satan happened at the cross. Have you heard that one? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's the amillennial view. Right. So then I, I read this verse during the debate. I said, when it came back to me, it said, so um, if it happened at the cross... Here it says he will be released or unbound. So when is God going to undo the work of the cross? And I asked that to the millennial because it has to mean the same thing. He was bound and now he's released. So when is the cross going to be undone? And he was dumbfounded, literally dumbfounded. And I don't think he'd ever thought of that. And I got quite a gasp from the crowd that was there. And I, when I talked to the guy, it was a nice fellow. I'm not trying to demean the character qualities of some of these people. Talking to him privately, 
he had grown up in a dispensational church and he saw a lot of shallowness, silliness, hypocrisy, backsliding, things that he thought rightly so were inappropriate. And so he went over to Calvinism because he thought he had to escape from the mess that he saw in the church he grew up in. Hmm. And I, I said, well, I grew up in a liber- liberal church, but really our theology can't be determined because we don't like what we grew up in. All right? Um, if it were literally true, that what I heard from pastors, that, there were, that Christ was never raised from the dead, that there are no miracles, and that religion exists for us to try to be good people, if that were literally true, then it would make sense to live and believe that way. But when I became a Christian, or actually through science, I found out it's not true. God did create the world out of nothing. Uh, dear ones, we need to believe that we can know what's true and right. The failures of people, whoever they may have been, that we didn't like when we were children is not a sufficient reason to live the rest of our lives a certain way. I didn't like this, I didn't like this, I didn't like this, so I did this. It doesn't matter what we like or don't like, it only matters what's true. And this fellow who had gone over to creedal Calvinism because he didn't like dispensationalists, I didn't make a lot of the claims in our debate that he was angry about. I didn't even make them because I didn't believe them myself. And, but, the, but if something won't hold up, if it's not true, if you can't defend it, don't write it. Don't preach it. Don't put it out in public because somebody's going to challenge you and you'll end up in a debate with some really smart people and they're going to make you look stupid. And I, I, I hate failing, and I've got to admit, I've done it way too many times. But the best thing to do is prepare to be able to defend your own views and ask God for grace to live up to them. I don't want to know that my children won't serve God because of the way I was. It could happen, God forbid, but we've got to know what the Bible said because that's true. God won't fail. Our parents might fail. Our pastor might fail. Our church might fail. A denomination might fail. A seminary might fail. A country might fail. But God cannot lie. And if he says something, are we going to stand before him and say, I refuse to believe what you said because I didn't like other people? It won't wash. Dean, I was just wondering, because you said with the post-millennial people that Christ is reigning in heaven and then that the saints should have dominion on the earth and how much they have taken the Genesis commands from God about multiply and have yeah. dominion. Yeah. They do see the, the Genesis commands uh, being fruitful and multiply and having dominion over the earth. They, they emphasize that a great deal. I mean, that's why, that's why we have dominion theology. I mean, that's the basis for it. But having dominion over cows and sheep and <laughs> pigs yeah. isn't the same as having dominion over other people. 
Yeah, that's what they emphasize to the other people. Yeah, but they can't defend the view. No, but... Because, like I said, I wrote to Gary North, uh, who teaches that, back before the Internet, and he just sent me a letter back saying, I only get a letter from somebody like you once a year, and I don't have time to swat flies coming through my window. They're not worth messing with. Yeah, so... But, but maybe I'm not important. Maybe I haven't written 20 books and, and I don't have PhDs and, and everything else. But it's still a valid question. Did God command us to take dominion over other fallen human beings and force them to do what we tell them to do? Where did God command us to do that? He, he, yeah, we're, God sets up the rulers and leaders, whoever they may be, We'll, we'll see that today in, in Daniel. It may, if we could just let the Bible teach us what we're supposed to believe, we'll be way better off than thinking what we would like or defending our tradition or trying to reject a tradition that somebody else had because we didn't like it. We still have to know what's true. So from there, from this restored Jerusalem, Christ will rule and reign with all his saints with an unqualified justice and righteousness such as this old earth has longed to see since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. Great will be the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now we've addressed that first question of when the millennial kingdom will be. Now we're going to turn our attention to the second question of what will this millennial kingdom be like? So, Bob, if you can help me set up the, go, to, okay. go to the next president. Yep. Yep. Okay, here we go. New PowerPoint. Yep. There we go. It worked. <laughs> God does do miracles. So, so now I want to address the second question of what will this millennial kingdom be like? And in order to do that, we will take a look at some of the many, many Old Testament prophecies about this millennial kingdom. But before I do that, I want to take a few minutes to look at how this concept of a future millennial kingdom has been regarded throughout church history. If you grew up with a dispensational background, if you grew up in a Baptist church or one of the Pentecostal denominations, you might think, well, a future millennial kingdom, duh, isn't that just the standard Christian teaching? No. Unfortunately, throughout much of church history, the idea, the concept of a future millennial kingdom has not been well received. It's been rejected and ridiculed, despised, and denigrated, and just generally not liked very much. Why is that? Why do, why do people so despise the idea of a future millennial kingdom? For the first couple of centuries of, the, of Christian history of the church, Christians did believe in a future millennial kingdom. This is what historians refer to as kiliasm. The word millennium comes from the Latin for a thousand years. Kiliasm comes from the Greek. Kiliasm is the doctrine of Christ's expected return to reign on earth for a thousand years. So that's what people believed. 
When I spoke about the canon of scripture, I mentioned a man named Irenaeus. So Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John, and Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. So Irenaeus is just two generations removed from the apostles. He's an important bridge between the apostles and us. When we look at the writings of Irenaeus, we can get some insight into the teachings of the early church. I was curious about what, if anything, Irenaeus said about the Monial Kingdom. So I looked into it and I discovered this statement from Irenaeus. Since there will be real men in the kingdom, there needs to be a real physical existence lest they vanish away in a non-physical world. They need to exist in a physical world among physical beings which have a material existence. So Irenaeus understood that between the time of the second coming of Christ and the beginning of the eternal state, there had to be a transition period. There had to be a period when there were actual physical, mortal, flesh and blood human beings populating the earth. It was easy for Christians to see that there couldn't be a millennial kingdom until worldly governments were replaced with a godly government. Because in the early years of the church, Christianity was an illegal religion in the Roman Empire. So they could see that this isn't going to change until we have a godly government ruling the earth. But in the fourth century, that began to change. The Emperor Constantine declared Christianity to be a legal religion. So people began thinking, well, maybe we shouldn't be looking for a future millennial kingdom. Maybe, maybe we are in the millennium. One of the main thinkers in this regard was Augustine. Are you interested in a couple other early premillennialists? Sure. Okay. There was a guy by the name of Papias. Oh, yeah. And Eusebius, the early church historian, who rejected a millennium, cited that Papias, who was reported to have known the apostle John, Mm -hmm. said there would be a... Here's what um, Eusebius said said there would be a certain millennium after the resurrection that there would be a corporal reign of Christ on this earth which things he appears to have imagined as if they were authorized by the apostolic so Eusebius um, downplays the importance of Papias but I, I did some research in seminary and actually there's good evidence that he was a hearer of John companion of Polycarp Mm-hmm. and did believe in a literal millennium. And so there were other writings. Yep. And so they really believed in a millennium until later. And this yep. is the later yeah. here, Augustine. Yeah. The, the writings of Augustine are really a mixed bag because he was very good on some issues. He confronted the heresy of Pelagius. Pelagius taught that Jesus Christ gets his 
almost all the way to salvation, but there's a little bit that you have to do. There's a little bit that you're responsible for. And, and Augustine said, no, God, Jesus Christ is responsible for all of our salvation. And also, so, uh, Augustine helped us to understand the concept of original sin and federal headship. How it is that Adam, back in the Garden of Eden, didn't just make a decision for himself. He made a decision for all of his progeny, all of his descendants. We're not, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We, we begin with a sin nature. We don't come on the scene with a clean slate. So on some issues, Augustine was very good. But on the issue of eschatology, Augustine was a very bad influence on the church. Here's what Augustine said. He spoke very derogatorily about those who believe in a future millennial kingdom. This is what Augustine said. John spoke about two resurrections in the book, which is called Revelation. Yet he spoke in such a way that some Christians do not understand the first of the two. These Christians contort the passage into ridiculous fantasies. Some, on the basis of this passage, have suspected that the first resurrection is future and bodily. Well, yeah. <laughs> Such claims can be believed only by those that are fleshly. Those who are spiritual call these persons millenarians. So there are two things that are happening here. First of all, people are beginning to think, well, maybe Christianity is compatible with worldly governments. And the other thing is that people are beginning to look at the idea of, of a future millennial kingdom as being too worldly, too carnal, too Jewish. The Council of Ephesus in 431 condemned premillennialism as a superstition. Amillennialism remained the dominant view throughout the Middle Ages. Amillennialism was also the dominant view of the Protestant reformers. They disliked premillennialism, perhaps because they did not like the activities of certain Anabaptist groups who were premillennialists. The Lutheran Church formally rejected premillennialism in the Augsburg Confession of 1530, condemning those who now scatter Jewish opinions that before the resurrection of the dead, the godly shall occupy the kingdom of the world, the wicked being everywhere suppressed. So the Lutherans didn't like that idea. Likewise, the Swiss reformer, Heinrich Bullinger, wrote the Second Helvetic Confession of 1566, which reads, we also reject the Jewish dream of a millennium or golden age on, the, on earth before the last judgment. John Calvin wrote in his Institutes of Religion that premillennialism is a fiction, which is too childish either to need or to be worth a reputation. So, so John Calvin would have, would have said that it, it's silly for you and me to even be considering, even being entertaining the idea that there might be a future millennial kingdom. Was there any commonality in maybe the reasoning for 
these people to think that way when the scriptures show that there is um, one coming? <laughs> it's just, is there, we get these little clips, but did you, in your research, find any common um, thinking or spirit yeah. as to why? We are very thankful that the reformers were willing to reconsider, to take another look at the prevalent views on soteriology, on salvation. We're very thankful for that. But they didn't take another look at the ideas on eschatology. They just accepted what had been passed down to them from Augustine. I mean, they didn't, they didn't look at, they didn't even consider changing their thinking about eschatology. There, there, um, I'll try to find a better, all I have is HTML. I wrote a, paper, a scholarly paper on that when I was in seminary, submitted it to my church history professor, and I listed a person after person after person before Augustine who believed in a literal millennium. It's on our CICministry.org site under scholarly, and I've got a really good grade and review from my teacher. And I, this was back when he had to go to a literal library with literal paper things and dig around because there was no Google. I know I'm old. I remember when there was no Google. Um, uh, Christy, I'll see if I can't. I, I can now get WordPerfect open. I'll find my original and get it into some sort of form where a PDF can be done. But you, you make some great points, Dina. You, you know why all of this ended up happening with Rome and the, the reformers refusing to really practice scripture alone? Hatred of the Jews. Mm -hmm. They hated the idea that God would keep promises to the Jews. And all you need to know is what's in Acts 1. When the early apostles asked Jesus, who was there in the flesh, raised from the dead, they were at Jerusalem when they asked the question. And it only made sense for, to them yeah. that we're here, the Lord's raised, God is victorious, so now we'll restore the kingdom to Israel as was promised to our fathers. And that's why I said that there are two things that were going on since the time of Augustine. One is the idea that we Christians can work through worldly governments, and the other is that we don't like this idea of a future millennial kingdom because it's too Jewish. It's Jewish. Yeah. So there's replacement theology, anti-Semitism, rejection of what Jesus himself said to his own apostles. And when I made these people own that, they were literally embarrassed. And um, I'll debate any Lutheran or Calvinist anywhere on this topic, because I've already done it. They're defenseless. They have to literally admit that Jesus was wrong, which they know they can't say. One guy said to me, well, maybe we'll understand this better some other time. No, Jesus promises. Then you go to Romans 11. Eric did a fantastic job. And they say, well, it doesn't matter. It'll all work out. Why, why debate things that don't matter? 
that's an attack against the sufficiency of Scripture. That's an attack that says God God inspired these things. Luke wrote them. John wrote them. But God was wasting ink and wasting time because he wrote what doesn't matter. And I debated that. And they just sit there, oh, oh, creeds and councils, creeds and councils. And we have to, I'm hoping to deal with this. Because we have to establish scripture alone, sufficiency of scripture, inerrancy of scripture. Creeds and councils are not binding on anybody unless those who wrote them are people appointed by Jesus, taught by Jesus in the flesh, and are real apostles. If not, they're just teaching. If they're teaching, then we can go back to Scripture. But they won't let us do that because the creeds and councils are binding, so how dare you go back to Scripture? Make them get embarrassed. And then they'll just say, well, we're safe. We're going to go. Calvin will take care of us. Well, you're going to have to answer to Jesus, not Calvin. Yes. I was just, so along with the anti-Semitism as part of this reason, but then was it Eusebius that started the allegorization of Scripture? Would that play a part of this also? Well, it started before Eusebius. It starts earlier than that. Um, this, This bias against the premillennial view continues to the present day. This is the Lutheran Study Bible. And in the Lutheran Study Bible, as study Bibles do, there are diagrams and charts and maps and articles. One of the diagrams that you will find in the Lutheran Study Bible is this diagram here, which has the false timeline up here, and then down here it has the the true timeline. We'll take a look at these. So th- this is the false timeline according to the according to the Lutheran Study Bible. So so we have the the rapture and we have the tribulation and then we have the return of Christ and then we have the thousand years and then after the thousand years then we have the the uh, eternal state. Now that's what most of you believe, but that's what the Lutheran Study Bible calls the false timeline. <laughs> and then this, according to the Lutheran Study Bible, is the true timeline, the Revelation's true timeline. So we have this symbolic thousand years, this symbolic millennium that begins with the first coming of Christ, the victory of Christ over death and sin. And then at the end we go, we have the second coming of Christ and we go immediately into the eternal state, according to the Lutheran Study Bible, that is the true timeline. And I don't mean to, to just pick on Lutherans. Uh, I find much the same thing when I go to a, 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 millennial, a millennialist website. This is what they call the flawed expectation. Once again, this is pretty much, pretty much what most of you believed. A rapture, tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the millennium, and then at the end of the millennium, we, we go into the eternal state. But according to the Lutheran, stu- according to this 
amillennialist website, that is the flawed expectation, and then this is the biblical expectation. Once again, the symbolic 1,000-year millennium, which begins at the cross and continues until Christ's second coming, and then we go into the eternal state. So once again, we have this, this teaching that 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 is the biblical expectation. Now, we're going to look next time at these Old Testament prophecies about what the millennial kingdom will be like. But you might wonder, as we look at these prophecies, they're clearly talking about a future kingdom where Israel is restored. How do amillennialists and postmillennialists respond to these Old Testament scriptures? Well, there are, th- there are three different responses that they usually have. Number one, they ignore them. Number two, they reinterpret them. And number three, they deny them. So lo- those are the three responses that they usually take. Uh, do you know who David Reagan is? Da- David Reagan is a, is a Bible teacher, mainly a prophecy teacher. He's a premillennialist. He believes in a future millennial kingdom of God. But he grew up in an amillennial church. And as a young man, when he first discovered these Old Testament prophecies about a future kingdom, he took these prophecies to his pastor and he said, what do these mean? This doesn't fit into our understanding at all. And this is what his pastor said. I don't know what these verses mean, but I can assure you that they do not mean what they say. <laughs> so just move along, nothing to see here. This is why I, I joked last time that you never hear of an amillennial prophecy conference. Because for an amillennialist, eschatology is, is very simple. Christ returns, we go into the eternal state. What is there to discuss? So that's that's one view, one way to, to respond is to ignore them. Another way is to reinterpret them. And I thought I would give you an example of how this happens. So first of all, we'll look at this passage in Zechariah. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Now that seems like a very straightforward prophecy. I mean, there doesn't seem like there are too many different ways you can interpret that. Au contraire, what I mean. (laughs) In his book, The Millennium, Lorraine Bettner argues that the Mount of Olives is a symbol of the human heart. The enemy forces are a symbol of the evil in the world attacking the heart. When a person receives Jesus as Lord and Savior, he comes into their heart, causing the heart to split in repentance. He then defeats all the enemy forces and begins to reign over that person's heart. You, you all got that out of this passage, right? Isn't it obvious? <laughs> 
once you go down that road of allegorization, if you use your imagination, you can come up with some really clever, really interesting, really innovative ideas, but they don't come from the Bible. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to make a comment. What that guy said is totally subjective. Anybody can say anything then, and, you know, they, they, they can make up something. Yep. <laughs> I have one, one last, I want to get to the last one here. They, they, so they, they ignore them, they reinterpret them, or they deny them. When I say that they deny them, I don't mean that they deny the prophecies exist. I mean, the prophecies are right there in the text. You can't deny that they exist. What I mean is they deny that the prophecies will ever come to pass. So I think that this third way of dealing with these prophecies is probably the most pernicious because of what it says about the nature of God. Some will say that these are merely potential prophecies, that this is what would have happened if Israel had remained faithful to God and accepted Jesus as the Messiah. But since Israel didn't remain faithful to God and did not accept Jesus as a whole, these prophecies have never come to pass and will never be fulfilled. This is just an example from, these are from the notes of a study Bible. Other interpreters understand Ezekiel's temple vision as a description of the way God would bless his people. That's what he would have done if they had remained faithful. I believe in a God who, when he makes promises, he keeps those promises. I don't believe in a God who says, well, that didn't work out the way I thought it would. So I'm going to have to go to plan B. If I'm going to bless Israel, I'm going to have to redefine Israel. And in all those physical prophecies, I'm going to have to change them into spiritual prophecies so I can fulfill them in the church. Good point. God's promises are certain. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Last time I checked, the sun is still rising and setting every day. And when I look up into the sky at night, I see the moon and the stars. Yes, God will keep his promises to Israel. Amen. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. With all of our technological advances, we still can't measure the vastness of the universe. And our, our deepest drillings have just barely scratched the earth's surface. We haven't gotten anywhere near to exploring the core of the earth. God will keep his promises to Israel. That's the God that the Bible teaches. Amen. So we'll continue with, with the Old Testament prophecies next time. We'll close in prayer. What's that? We'll close in prayer. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Father in heaven, we thank you for the more sure word of prophecy that you have given us. We thank you that you have revealed your plans to us 
And we thank you that we can rely upon you. We don't need to look to the, the teachings and the reasonings of man. We don't need to look to the reasonings and the traditions and the, all of the explanations. We can rely upon you and your promises and your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.